Welcome once again to the Known Pleasures Podcast. On this very special episode, we've decided to do another list podcast where we discuss the new wave bandwagon jumpers. Be it a post-punk appropriation by genuine fans, a dabble in the new wave by former wave makers, or an opportunist opportunity to sell records. We went in hard and found our top 10 recording artists that dared to jump on the bandwagon of new music in the early 80s. Just a reminder, we are recording this podcast on Zoom, so there are a few audio glitches here and there. We've got our bandwagons in a circle. Let's begin with number 10. Okay, well, number 10 on our list is a controversial one. I feel like I'm on my own on this one. I have a feeling that my two compadres don't agree with me here. Um, it's a song called The Wanderer by uh, disco queen Donna Summer. If Donna Summer wasn't the queen of disco, she was certainly the Grand Duchess in disco's constitutional monarchy. But this song, I think, was her abdication. And this is the, basically the case <laughs> that I'm putting forward to you, <laughs> that, um, that I think that she made a conscious effort at this point in her life to distance herself from disco. Although you could see this is a continuation of her R&B music with like 80s synths thrown in, I think there was a deliberate attempt from her to affect this almost anti-singing delivery. Slip down the back, stare on my toes, then out the door. They didn't hear, now they won't see me anymore. There was a lot of singers at the time like Lenny Lovitch and Debbie Harry and Nina Hagen that eschewed these traditional singing tropes. And I think Donna Summer was aware of what was happening and tried a different delivery. What do you guys think of that? Oh, yeah. Look, I reckon there is a little bit of new wavy stuff in her oeuvre around that time. I think Sunset People, I don't know if you remember that single from the Bad Girls album. That had a bit of a Depeche mode kind of feel to it, which was pretty impressive. Okay. A couple of years before Depeche Mode. But I guess from my point of view, because she was doing those songs, uh, a lot of songs with Georgia Moroder, mm. who was, you know, a big keyboards guy, I kind of felt like the keyboards were already part of what she was doing. Mm. And I think it's a fair point about the different vocal style because it's it's really unusual for her to kind of sing like that. Mm. But it doesn't strike me as being particularly post-punk. Right. I remember reading somewhere that she said she wanted to leave disco behind at that time. Mm. Uh, this is September 1980, by the way, so she wasn't too far off the, the pace of things. Uh, mm. Yeah, Bad Girls was her previous album, which was a huge hit. Giorgio Moroder produced this for her. Yeah, something about she had rediscovered her Christian faith and she was looking at kind of moving away from this sexualized image. So mm. maybe that's why she wanted to sing in a different way. But I mean, it definitely had some new wave synths and that kind of shuffling beat. Kind of a 50s vocal, really, with that uh, reverb mm. on it. Yeah, the slapback reverb. Yeah, it's still a kind of a dance song. And I mean, it got to number one on the US chart, uh, number three, sorry, on the US yeah. charts. So it wasn't exactly two out there. But I, I take your point, Graham, but this is why it's number 10. got to remember that this was at the height of the Disco Sucks 
war, I guess mm, you could call yeah, it. Yeah. I, I'm not overstating it when I call it a war. I think no, um, no, it was a war. It was a war. It was, it was a war. I think Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer were saying at the time that when it came to disco music, they were just following orders. But um, <laughs> so, so, so many, many of the disco artists, I think, wound up in South America after a while. Well, but, um, a lot of people never came home, Grant. They went to the disco, <laughs> they never came home. They never came home, that's right. They're still there. So there were bands like Earth, Wind and Fuhrer. Sorry, I've got a whole, I've got a, I've got a whole list of these. I won't go through them. But my favourite one is Wild Jerry. But, um, yeah, there, there, was, <laughs> there was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of bands at the time who were, I think, moving away from disco because it all of a sudden left a bad taste in people's mouths. Um, so she was looking to kind of get away from that in general. In summation, there were a lot of guitars which kept one foot in the rock camp. The bass was actually quite funky. Um, mm. You know, lots of 80s synths. But for me... It's all in her delivery that makes it new wave. Fair enough. Mm. I, I won't argue with you. I think it's a solid number 10. No problem. I rest my case. <laughs> That's exactly right. Are we going to move on? Yeah, let's move on. Number nine. is uh, Linda Ronstadt. This is from the Mad Love album, correct, in January 1980? Yes, right? yes, yes, that's okay. right. Yeah. Linda Ronstadt was the darling of West Coast soft rock in the 70s. She knew the Eagles when they were still friends. She knew Jackson Brown when he was still running on a full tank of gas. And she knew Warren Zevon before his ill-fated trip to London during a full moon. She was on the top of the world at this point. So why did she embrace New Wave? This is my question to you guys, is that in 1979, she was the number one female singer in the world. So why did she feel she had to do this? I think she felt like things had moved on. Um, mm. And I read a quote from her where she said, it would be silly for me to dye my hair pink and start to pogo, but yet I, you know, things have changed and it's a different world now and she wanted to be a part of it. And she was a huge Elvis Costello fan as well. Um, there are three Elvis Costello songs on this album per, yep. of hers. Is it yes, yes. Um, which, you know, obviously she sort of set her stall out there uh, that she wanted to do something different. And she was influenced by, you know, the Max My Sharona and Debbie Harry and people like that. It was sort of that kind of style of music. I don't know, Patty. Yeah, well, she recorded the Elvis Costello song Alison on her previous album as well. So she had kind of dipped a toe in, uh, even though Alison is not the most kind of post-punk Elvis Costello track by any means. Yeah, I think she was definitely just trying something different. And the song, How Do I Make It, goes for 2 minutes 25 seconds, which is, you know, a really kind of punky length. She had her hair at a punky length as well. I think. There's yeah, a great yeah. quote from Elvis, and I'm probably going to cut your grass here, guys, but um, when, he, when he was told about the three songs on, on her album of his... He was quoted as saying, they are like sheer torture, dreadful, a total waste of vital. <laughs> Tell us what you really think, Elvis. That's, that's, that's pretty damning, isn't it? And it kind of sums up Elvis Costello in 1979-80. He was a bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe. But that was one of the things I liked about him at the time. He was uh, a bit arrogant uh, and he was uh, an angry young man. Yeah. But he also wasn't beyond taking the royalties from Linda's versions. No, he was happy with that. Well, it was it was a, a, a top 10 US hit, wasn't it? Uh, this is the song and the album obviously went, went pretty high as well. So... He did all right for himself out of this one. Yeah. Well, well actually, uh, Elvis did donate some, if not all, of his royalties for Linda Ronstadt's songs 
to the African National Congress after Linda played at Sun City in 1983 in South Africa, the uh, resort there. Okay. So he took the money, but he but he gave at least some of it back. Uh, and regarding that excellent Elvis quote about those songs, years later he did retract those comments and he said, yes. I was just being punky and horrible. So I think we'd have to agree that it is a genuine, like an authentic punk song because it did feature on an album we've spoken about in previous podcasts, which is our Chipmunk Punk. Yes. Which was uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks uh, doing their tribute to uh, the genuine you know, music revolution of the 1970s. <laughs> in you know the, the only way they knew how with authentic chipmunk power. So yeah, so I mean, once you're on there, you know, I think any kind of discussion that three of us are going to have about the punk credentials mm. of this song or post-punk credentials becomes uh, pretty moot. Look, one yeah. of the best things about this uh, album, whatever, Linda Onset period, there's a song on Mad Love. I think she she also did the song Mad Love. And in the video, if you get a chance to look at it, the keyboard player has obviously been told, look, you need to get a bit new wave, a bit punk rock here. He's dressed almost like an office worker. He's got that classic shirt and tie combo that was new wave at the time, except yeah. he's basically just got these kind of loose trousers on, an office shirt, and his tie just pulled down a little bit. He just looks like a guy <laughs> on his lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> He's meant to look, you know, new wave, skinny yeah. tie, but he looks okay. like he just wandered in from, you know, lunch and he's someone said put a keyboard in front of him and off we go. It's worth <laughs> a look anyway. Yeah. Oh, good. So have we? are we done with Linda? I think we've I- given Linda our best shot, yeah. <laughs> I've got a bit of background on the song, but I don't know whether it really matters. Chuck it in if you want. Dream about me. Dream about me. Well, it's just that the guy who wrote How Do I Make You, his name was Billy Steinberg. Um, and he was trying to write the next My Serena when he wrote How Do I Make You. He was trying to write it, but it had already been written. <laughs> there was no need for him to write it because the knack had already written it. <laughs> he was from the Cretones, is that right? Or was that no, no, this is another guy. The Cretones were the new wave band that Linda Ronstadt teamed up with uh, okay, to yeah. do a few of their songs. And they're the kind of new wavy looking guys, like yeah, the guitarists yeah, yeah. and whatever, okay. in the videos. But okay. uh, Billy Steinberg had his own band called Billy Thermal. And uh, they wrote and recorded How Do I Make You? And I think one member of this band, his girlfriend, was in Linda Ronstadt's band as a backing singer. Okay. That's how Linda Ronstadt heard the song and then uh, and she loved it and, and recorded it. But this guy, Billy Steinberg, went on to write Eternal Flame for the Bangles and Like a Virgin for Madonna. He, he became a really big oh, yeah, okay, yeah. songwriter yeah. Uh, later on, which is... Yeah. Um, well, it's a great song, but it's no My Sharona. <laughs> and the singer from the backing band, the Cretones, do you know what he ended up writing? No. He ended up writing Automatic for the Pointer Sisters. Oh, wow. That's a great song. Anyway, that's probably not something for the podcast, but it's, it just did strike me. The Pointer Sisters are one of my favourite new wave bands. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe they should have been on the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, at number eight. When Fleetwood Mac sold 10 million copies of Rumours at the height of punk in 1977, no one thought their next album would be a stone-cold new wave classic, and it wasn't. So was Lindsay Buckingham in on the joke with Not That Funny from the album Tusk? 
What do you think, guys? Mm, well, this was uh, this was your choice, I think, Ryan. Uh, no, actually, I think this might have been Mark's choice. I can't remember, but I just know that at the time, Lindsay Buckingham was infatuated with uh, new wave bands, mm. Talking Heads in particular. Yeah, 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 that's right. And a bit of um, Laurie Anderson and The Clash too, apparently. Yeah, The Clash, and I guess he would have been looking back on his recent successes and thinking, oh, well, that, that's that's all well and good, but music seems to be heading in a different direction and I want to be a part of it. I'm assuming that's what he was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, didn't want to be left behind, didn't want to be seen as another M.O.R. band. That was, that mm. was what he said. So it certainly was quite an experimental album, especially production-wise, I think. Mm. Mm. He did some mm. really unusual things, but the album still did really well, amazingly. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was uh, number one in the UK, and like number three or four in the US, maybe. Yeah. It was the most expensive album of all time. At the time, I think it cost the equivalent of three or four million dollars US to make, which I think pales in comparison to uh, Guns N' Roses' later efforts, which was a, yeah, a bucket load of money at the time. And they spent a lot of money getting a pretty dry and raw kind of production sound <laughs> on some of those songs to try and get that kind of garage thing. And I did like the story that I heard about Lindsay getting a microphone taped to the floor and doing push-ups over the top of it and singing, not that funny, is it? While he's kind of breathing in and breathing out doing (laughs) push-ups. But uh, yeah, he was definitely in an experimental state of mind. So it's not a particularly post-punk album, you know, by any means, but there is always a bit of an edge of experimentalism to it. You know, certainly the songs that Lindsay wrote. Yeah. Well, strangely, this was released as a single in three countries as well, which I thought was a little bit unusual. Yeah, Uh, In the UK, Germany and Holland, it was released as a single. So it's not the most catchy single that I would have thought. (laughs) No, no. But yeah, and they still play it to this day, apparently. It's still a bit of a live favourite. I think think it is hugely impressive for, for a band that was absolutely at the top of their game and they would you say they were the most popular band in the world? Certainly them or the Eagles maybe. But, but um, Well, yeah, it'd have to be close to it with rumours, you know, 10 million mm. copies is not nothing. No, no, no. And then to kind of go, okay, well, let's do something completely different. I mean, a double album. I suppose double albums were. I mean, ELO did a double album kind of around that time. Mm. Uh, yeah, mm. so, yeah, bands were doing double albums, but I think it is really impressive that they did feel that they could experiment like, like that and that they didn't just lazily try and make rumours too. Mm. No, I think he was definitely against that idea for sure. A worthy addition. I think so. So shall we move on to the great Fallen Oats? One of your favourites, Graham, coming in at number seven. Paul and Oates were America's blue-eyed soul sensations, but they weren't just living in an ebony and ivory tower. <laughs> With two ears cocked to what else was going on, 1979's ecstatic album definitely had new wave influences. Was no brain, no pain, their answer to Oh Bondage Up Yours. Graham, one of your favourite bands outside of the post-punk oeuvre is Paul yes. and Oates. Now, you're a bit of an expert. This album... Um, Ecstatic had quite a few kind of new wave tracks on it, didn't it, really? Yes. The uh, Hall and Oates were kind of a band that could be described as both out of touch and out of time. <laughs> um, I really like Daryl Hall 
in as far as he seems unafraid to experiment on occasion. I think I told you guys recently that in 1977 he recorded his first solo album with Robert Fripp, which was meant to be part of a trilogy with Peter Gabriel in Robert Fripp's own Exposure album. And it, was, it certainly wasn't great, but um, you could see that he was quite interested in doing something apart from what Hall and Oates used to do. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that, like everyone else, during 1979, they were hearing a lot of this great music coming out of the UK. And on this particular ecstatic album, the second half is almost all quirky pop rock tunes and you can hear a... Kind of Devo stuff, isn't it? Very influenced Mm. by that sort of sound, yeah. There's a reggae thing which suggests they may have been listening to the police. Um, There's a bit of XTC. Because they invented reggae, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's where Lee Scratch Perry got the idea, I think. Bob Marley, I think, was influenced by the police. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Okay, okay. Just a word in my defence here. Uh, If you listen to the song by Hollow Notes called Number One, I think it has more to the police than Bob Marley. Graham, you were a Hall & Oates fan going way back? Yes. The guys, actually, the friends of mine who got me into punk originally, a few years before, they got me into Hall & Oates. And it was one of those bands that I didn't kind of cast aside once punk started. I, mm. I, I always had a, a soft spot for them. And even during the early 80s, I think they did some great stuff. Yeah, not the coolest band in the world. But you were on board with She's Gone and Rich Girl and... Oh, yeah, absolutely. All the, all the greats. Yeah, all the greats. Yeah, I, I really liked them. So sensitive. We felt everything so intensely. Let's hear it for the boys and girls just having fun and not worrying about anything. Look, I think, as you said, Graham, he's not afraid to experiment. I like that mm. about him. And he's, he's open-minded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once again, a band that didn't really need to touch on this sort of stuff. But I'm always intrigued as to why bands relatively well-known bands and established bands would have a crack at this stuff. And I guess that's why we were doing this top ten, because all of the bands that we're talking about were sort of, you know, well-established, successful acts and didn't really need to do this. Why did they? So mm. I, I kind of mm. like that he had a go at this. And I think when they were recording that album, I think Devo had only released maybe their first album or maybe the second album, Duty Now for the Future, might have just come out maybe while they were recording it. So you can certainly hear a little bit of that on uh, No Brain, No Pain. Mm. Well, that was a B-side to one of their singles anyway, but it was part of the recording session, mm. wasn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, and they did subsequently, like they didn't cast aside, you know, a la Linda Ronstadt or uh, Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> they didn't cast aside their post-punk interest as the years progressed and, you know, there was definitely a, a hint of new wave about them for the next couple of years at least. A private Eyes, I Can't Go mm. For That, and song, songs along those lines. So, mm. you know, they were... I mean, they were certainly a proper pop band and at a certain stage they were just about the biggest band in the world having used the kind of new wave influences to great effect mm. but still sounding relevant somehow, you know, seven or eight years after, mm. since their first hit. So I think was, they deserve a, deserve a mention at a solid number seven for me. I mean, Kiss on my list is one of the worst songs in history, so <laughs> let's not forget that. But they insist on knowing my bliss. I mean, come on. That is just... That is appalling. That's a songwriter with a rhyming dictionary on his lap, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, at number six, we've got The Rollers with Elevator. Elevator. 
formerly the Bay City Rollers, should we say that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Mark, they didn't want to be known as the Bay City Rollers anymore. This is a great intro. <laughs> you're, you're, you're ruining everything by mentioning the Bay City Rollers. This has nothing to do with the Bay City Rollers. All right, start again. I don't think the three of us can overstate how big the Bay City Rollers were in the 70s. They were one of the few bands that had the suffix mania tacked on to the end of their name. Not many people have had this. In the 60s, there was Beatlemania. In the 70s, we had Abba Mania and Roller Mania. And in the 80s, we had Ant Mania. And there was also Kiss, but I think they were more of a hysteria than a mania. But um, as you know, young girls who suffered from roller mania became roller manic depressives and some even suffer from bi-roller disorder. But the, um, the 70s didn't end well for the Bay City Rollers. Uh, Realising that their use-by date was fast approaching, they decided to cut their Scottish locks, pull down their three-quarter pants, uncheck their tartan and toughen up their image. So guys, this is uh, where I pass it over to you. They've toughened up their image. Do you think they succeeded? Well, first off, we should say that they had a new lead singer. I'm not sure how you pronounce the old lead singer's name. Is it Les McKeon? Yeah, I think it's McEwen. And do, do you know how to pronounce the new lead singer's name? I do. <laughs> Let's just go with Duncan Fora. Oh, well, very good. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Of the South African band Rabbit, mm. if anyone remembers Rabbit. He came in as the new lead singer and, um, and the band decided, look, we need to change tack, as Graham pointed out. Um, they released three albums in a kind of new wave vein, but we're going to talk about the track Elevator, which is preceded also by Stoned Houses Number 1, which is a really strange little synthy intro thing which leads into Elevator, which I think we have to feature as well because I think it's really great. I don't know what you guys think. I, I kind of like the whole album as a, as a kind of historical document. I think it's kind of really interesting to come out in uh, 1979, as you say, after having been very successful as, uh, as a new band, if you like. Yeah, it is, it, it is very kind of punchy power pop most of the way through with a bit of just genuine kind of rock music, you know, good catchy rock songs. There's definitely some new wave credibility there. I mean, they are good songs. They obviously know how to play, and they were a proper band, mm. you know, unlike the Archies or whoever the Chipmunks. Yeah, yeah. They, are you telling me the Archies weren't a real band? <laughs> I'm, I'm alluding to it at, at the very least. You're saying that dog didn't conduct the band with a baton? <laughs> you obviously remember the Archies way better than I do, Brian. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think the Bay City Rollers, such as they were previously known, had come up through the kind of mean streets of uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow playing in the kind of music scene there in the early 70s. So they were a proper band. So in a sense, it's not that surprising that they were capable of coming up with some rock riffs once they sort of moved a bit more in that direction. And uh, I think it's really solid stuff. And I think it's great that they finally acknowledged that they weren't actually from Bay City, Michigan, which is you know what, what they'd named themselves after when they threw a dart into a dartboard. Oh, into really? a globe, I should say. It always sounds a bit try-hard to change your name to, you know, the something for, for a band around about that time, but I think they pretty much pulled it off. Unfortunately, nobody agreed because those three albums sank without trace, didn't they? Uh, Elevator yeah. Vox and Ricochet were all complete duds 
that just went yeah, nowhere, yeah. unfortunately, for them. I just think it was a great effort on their part, even though it probably wasn't the sort of thing that I would have listened to. Mm. And they could be guilty of jumping on the new wave bandwagon, but it was also great that they wanted to do something a bit more serious, I guess. Mm. Mm. Their previous album from 1978, Strangers in the Wind, had featured a single Where Will I Be Now, which sounded more like kind of Air Supply or one of those kind of soft rock bands from that era. So it was definitely a change in mood for them to kind of head in this direction. But mm. uh, this, in a way, felt more natural than some of the music they've been playing in earlier years, even though obviously Bye Bye Baby and so on was, you know, a bit more successful. Yeah. Um, are we done? Yes, I think so. Well, Graham, I think you're up again next. Am I Billy Joel? No, you're Alice Cooper, though, because Graham oh, sorry. Patrick decided to change the order. <laughs> yeah, Patrick decided to change the order at the 11th hour, <laughs> mm. and now the wheels have come off the rails. <laughs> okay. I just had to scroll a bit further. Okay, number four is Alice Cooper and the song Number Clones. five is Alice Cooper. Number Sorry? five is Alice Cooper. <laughs> Let me try that once again. He won't change, Patrick. No. He's not changing. <laughs> I'm, I'm really regretting my humble request. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Patrick, but it's now going to go six, four, five. <laughs> that, that's how we're counting this down. You just can't bring yourself. You can't bring yourself to do it. I can't backspace and type in a new number. <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond my capabilities. Okay, number five is Alice Cooper and the song is Clones. Now, by 1980, Alice Cooper had bitten off his last chicken head. He was no longer managing director of the Department of Youth. His, um, his early recordings were praised. I don't know whether you guys think about this, but it was almost like a goth rock kind of sound before goth yeah. was a thing. But then uh, he did Welcome to My Nightmare, started staging these elaborate shows that seemed to overshadow the music a bit. Then in 1977, he recorded an album, I don't know if you remember this, called Lace and Whiskey, and he portrayed a character called Morris Escargot, who was basically an Inspector Clouseau kind of a guy. So it, he, he couldn't be further away from rock music if he tried at this point. He was, he'd gone completely Broadway. That was the big um, yeah. back, backlash against Alice Cooper at the time, as everyone said, oh, he's gone Broadway. Um, so going into the new decade, he really needed to do something as his credibility had taken a bit of a hit and a bit of a hit is what he needed. So um, <laughs> enter Roy Thomas Baker. Um, what do you guys think of clones? I can tell you exactly what I thought of clones because uh, when I was 15, as I was around that time, I did make a list of my favourite songs of 1980 in my diary. And <laughs> Clones which you came still in, have. which I still have, and Clones came in at a healthy number fourteen. Wow! For my Is favorite this songs, top five hundred, top what was the what was the? I think it was the top eighteen because I couldn't think of twenty. <laughs> Were numbers four and five out of order? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe I just lost interest in the process. Uh, I mentioned the chart position of all of my favorites. Uh, yeah, so it was it was pretty <laughs> obsessive. But my number one, in case you're wondering, was um, Ashes to Ashes for 1980. Oh, great song. I'm all alone, so we are. We're all clones, all alone. 
Well, but don't, yeah, look, I think you're right in putting him in your top 18, Paddy. This, this is actually <laughs> a good song. It's, mm. it's heavily influenced by Gary Newman, um, yeah. which is which is a really interesting thing to do in January 1980 for an artist like Alan Cooper. It, it shows yeah. he was obviously aware and listening to what was going on out there. And um, yeah. I should just say that Roy Thomas Baker had just done Foreigner's Head Games album prior to doing this album. So there's a bit of a leap in styles for old Roy. <laughs> Yeah. It's across everything. Although he'd done the Cars Candio album like maybe 12 months earlier or yeah. something like that. So he had skin in the game. Mm. Yes, he had. But he'd also been doing Queen albums as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah, he was, yeah. He was, he was all over it. Mm. Um, I think this is a great song. The album was Flush the Fashion, wasn't it? And there's a couple of other yeah. songs on there which, which are quite good. I just wanted to say that, that, that Alice has punk rock c- credentials. I mean, John Lydon got his start in the Sex Pistols miming to I'm 18 by Alice Cooper in mm-hmm. the um, the sex shop in front of Malcolm McLaren and the other uh, band members of soon-to-be Sex Pistols. So John was a huge fan of Alice Cooper and, and, and basically still worships him to this day apparently. So you don't get much more punk rock than that. No, so no, if no, Alice no, wants no. to come in and do a Gary Newman-style album, you know, more power to yeah, him. Power and to and as, as Graham said, it was a hit too. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it got to what number forty, I think. Um, so, yeah, which was in the US? Which, mm. he hadn't had a lot of hits in the previous handful of years. Mm. Uh, I think his previous hit had been "How You Gonna See Me Now." How you gonna see me now? Please don't see me ugly, babe. Cause I know I let you down in all so many ways. Uh, which is a very, very different song to uh, to clones. Mm. And the film clip for Clones is a bit of a hint as to Alice's intentions. I don't know if you've seen the clip, but the entire mm. band is kind of dressed in black and kind of basically motionless, which is very un-rock and roll and very Gary Newman. Mm. So mm. his intentions were were very clear, I think. I think it was a credible effort. I remember it coming out at the time and thinking, you know what, this isn't bad. It's pretty good, yeah. actually. Good on, good on him. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Very good. Okay, are we going on to five? I mean four? (laughs) (laughs) Number four. The year was 1980, but in Billy Joel's mind, the punk rock wars were still raging. Enough was enough, and in May that year, he hit back hard with a smash hit single, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. What was Billy's problem? Guys. (laughs) He was an angry old man, wasn't he? He He was determined to kind of get his digs in to the uh, Fashionistas with a song which sounded very much like the Fashionistas. So it's almost like it's part parody and part celebration of new wave music, I think. And it got to number one. It was it was a huge hit for him, so he could hardly complain about it. Yeah, what, what I hate about Billy Joel here is that he saw there was new music on the horizon and rather than like either embracing it or ignoring it, he tried to make out like it was nothing new. Mm, mm. In the process, he tried to insult a new generation of music listeners who yeah. know, just wanting a style of music that they can call their own. Mm. But unlike his music, which was new, apparently. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a break. Look, I, I quite liked Billy Joel. His previous album, 52nd Street, uh, earned two Grammys. So he was a very successful artist at mm. this point. Why does he give a shit what anybody thinks about his music? <laughs> um, he, he seemed to kind of be annoyed by the fact that, that the, he didn't have that ability and he was being considered as an AOR artist yeah, like yeah. and other people. Yeah. And what, what, exactly what's wrong with that? He, he was like 32 or something at the time. So yeah, why does yeah. he have a beef with Devo and New Wave and everybody else? Yeah. I mean, Cheap pair of sneakers, mix 
insane. Uh, Billy, he did say, God save the Queen, the Sex Pistols song bored the hell out of me. He was just getting so angry for no apparent reason. It's just, <laughs> it's. I mean, all the other acts we're featuring were kind of either interested, well, they were interested in New Wave, which is, which is why they looked at it. But other bands, I mean, the Eagles never went post-punk, but I never got a sense of Don Henley kind of raging against Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Their careers went on as normal. It didn't affect them at all. Yeah, mm. selling a hundred times as many records as yes. any of these other bands. That's so, right. You know, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, there there and, was and, one quote that he said about Devo, sorry, he said, Devo, how artistic in a sarcastic way about Devo. Like, that really got under his skin. Yeah. They were having <laughs> wow. any yeah, success. Yeah. Like, wow. And the great mystery about this song is did people like it because it was new wave or because it was anti-new wave? It's kind of clever in that respect. Mm. Uh, I mean, it got slagged in the reviews. Rolling Stone said it's catchy, but so is the flu. Mm. So, you know, uh, yeah. which is kind of cool. But, yeah, yeah it was a yeah. huge success. It went to number one. I remember the song being everywhere and I kind of didn't yeah. mind it because I kind of didn't hate Billy Joel, but I remember thinking, you know, what's, what's his beef? Yeah, yeah. He was obviously a bit of a, um, a bit lame and a bit, you know, he was never going to be cool. Uh, I think he described himself along the lines of looking like someone who's come to fix your washing machine. <laughs> like that's how he described himself. I think he was a bit self-conscious about his uncoolness. Yeah. That really strong throat. He also consistently got bad reviews as well, so I think that's yeah, – yeah. he had a real chip on his shoulder, I think. Yeah, yeah. and yet continued to become more and more successful. So, you know, what, what exactly do you want, Billy? Yeah. <laughs> you want it all. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to and sell as many records as The Clash or do you want to be hugely successful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, and, of course, Weird Al Yankovic, at the beginning of his career, wrote a song, you probably know some of the lyrics, you guys, <laughs> uh, called uh, It's Still Billy Joel to Me. Do either of you have any access to the lyrics of that song? I think I do, actually. I am, dear. But yeah. I'm going to have to scroll back. It sounds like trash. Now everybody thinks the new wave is super fast when they want that or even out. I don't think that song ended up on an album, which is, I've never heard the song, I've, I've just seen the lyrics. The Weird Al song, yeah, yeah. It's just mm. um, the first time I heard a Weird Al was when he did um, Another One Rides the Bus, <laughs> which was actually before his big hit, which was Eat It, I think. The Michael Jackson thing that he did. Yeah, yeah. That's for another podcast. Yes, our Weird Al podcast. <laughs> the post-punk hits of Weird Al Yankovic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Moving on. Next, Neil Young. Patty, over to you. Okay. Comes a time when every 60s and 70s rock legend asks him or herself a few key questions. Well, one mainly. Why don't I record a commercially suicidal album dripping with sickness? Okay, maybe not every rock legend asks themselves that but Neil Young definitely did. So Computer Age from the album Trans, mm. an album that was universally derided by fans and the record buying public at large, mm. but uh, it's aged really well. It's computer aged really well. <laughs> what, what do you guys think? Well, I, I thought it was a really brave move for somebody like him to do that. And to be honest, it passed me by at the time, not mm. being a big Neil Young fan. But yeah. listening to it recently, I mean, the whole album, you could pick probably, you know, the four or five songs off the album that, that fit into the same kind of style of, of yeah. um, vocoders and drum machines and kind of weirdly futuristic craftworky sort of stuff. I was kind of blown away by it and, and mm. actually quite liked the album. 
think it's a really successful album. Him with his band, who had just been completely freaked out by being asked to kind of play this stuff, or why are you treating your vocals like that, and why are there synths everywhere, and why do the drums sound like this? I think it's a fascinating album. And yeah, I mean, he was mucking around with the vocals. We might have all come across this in our research as a bit of a therapy. He'd been looking into therapy programs for his young son who'd been born with cerebral palsy and who wasn't able to speak. And Neil said that he was spending 15 to 18 hours every day for about 18 months early in his son Ben's life, just kind of looking into ways to sort of develop speech or to kind of help Ben kind of get by. And uh, this kind of worked its way into the trans album. So it's just fascinating how someone with a bit of a creative mind can kind of integrate their life experiences into their music in, in really kind of their creative ways. Mm, Graham? I always tend to give Neil Young a bit of a pass here as he's um, he already expressed his love of punk rock when it happened. He mentioned Johnny Rotten in one of his songs and mm. uh, all throughout the 80s he seemed to dip his toe into the genre pool quite a bit. So um, the fact that he did an electronic album was, wasn't any surprise. No. It was only a matter of time before he did it. Mm. Uh, I didn't hear the album at the time. I heard the song but not the album. Yeah. But, yeah, I love it. And Neil... Um around about that time had finished producing and directing a film, Human Highway, which featured Devo playing power plant nuclear garbage man. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the movie features a 10-minute jam of the song Hey Hey My My, which has the Johnny Rotten lyric in it, uh, which is the, the king is gone but he's not forgotten. Is this the story of Johnny Rotten? Mm. So he was definitely yeah, interested in that stuff from fairly early on, and I think that jam might have been recorded in 78 or 79. The film took a long time to, to come out. Mm. Uh, um, I just wanted yeah. to say that this album ended up famously causing a lawsuit yeah. against Neil Young that he had deliberately produced uncommercial and unrepresentative work over, <laughs> over this album and the previous album, Reactor. So they basically were suing him because they were so unhappy with this album. You know you've yeah. done something right when the record company sues you over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Giffen, <laughs> Giffen Records was, I think. And, and there might have been another album that was considered uncommercial and unrepresentative. It was certainly a couple of albums. So, mm. and, uh, and then Neil subsequently released an album, Landing on Water, uh, 1985, which features a weight of the world and the experiment, which is very kind of Devo-ish, I think. So the experimentation definitely continued for a while after the trans album. And Neil is very proud of the trans album, as, mm. as he should be. Okay. Absolutely. Shall we move on to Paul McCartney? Yeah, it's, we are. Getting, it's getting tight now. Yeah, number two, uh, Paul McCartney. In 1969, in the wake of the Beatles' breakup, Paul McCartney recorded his self-titled debut album. It took him a decade to follow it up with McCartney 2, an ambitious, eclectic, eccentric mix of new wave, electro-pop and general weirdness on which he played every single instrument. Indulgent? Maybe. But then he's Paul McCartney and you're not. <laughs> Temporary Secretary is the song that we're specifically referring to from McCartney 2. She can be a belly dancer, I don't need a juromancer. She can be a diplomat, but I don't need a girl like that. It's a weird song. It's pretty annoying uh, in a way, but it's really cleverly done. And it was recorded in mid-1979, which was around about the time that Chubway Army was starting to make make a bit of impact. So he certainly wasn't a late adopter. It's a really interesting move, I think. He'd just come out of like a, a very creatively fertile period of the late 70s with Wings. Mm. Um, he had lots of hits and things, and all of a sudden um, he uh, employs electronic instruments. 
But what I, what I love about this idea is that Paul McCartney receiving delivery of a, an ARP synthesizer or a PPG wave or something like that, setting it up in his farm studio in the middle of Kintyre and then creating all of those weird electronic noises <laughs> with mm. the background of cows and sheep in the background. It just, <laughs> it just doesn't seem like the right atmosphere for creating electronic music. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's to be applauded. I mean, he was pushing 40, I think, when this album came. Mm. Yeah, it was, uh, far it, off it. Yeah, it was like 38 maybe. Yeah, mm. 38, September 1980. You know, this is, this is not bad. Um, and I should point out that this track is still popular with DJs today. I don't know if either of you are aware of that. But oh, nice. One of those songs that gets dropped into sets, you know, you know I don't, don't go out to these places myself, but this is what I hear from the young people. Um, yes. So much so that recently or a few years ago, um, a couple of DJs who go under the name of Darkstar featured a version of this song with the Wild Beast singer. They actually did a recording of it. And, you know, we know Wild Beast is quite good. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did a cover of the song, so it's it's one of those tracks that seems to have kind of outlived the album and had taken on a bit of a life of its own. And it's on the same album as uh, Coming Up. Which was a huge hit and which also had a kind of a quirky electro-pop kind of feel. So, mm. so... Uh, yeah, he was he was very good at basically whatever he, he set his mind to doing. So he could easily have kind of headed in this direction for the next decade, but he was just kind of trying it. And apparently he wasn't a fan of craft work and so on as such. He was just a sponge, as he describes it, soaking up everything, you know, without even really trying. Mm-hmm. So he definitely wasn't jumping on board any any bandwagon because there wasn't even really an electro-pop, synth-pop bandwagon at the time to kind of jump onto <laughs> well, it's a bit hard to accuse Paul McCartney of jumping on anything. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, will say right. that it went to number 13 in Luxembourg, so the Luxembourgers knew a good thing when they heard it. <laughs> so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and I should say that Wings' previous album, Back to the Egg, which, Mark, I remember you and I listening to a bit at the time, yeah. that had a, a bit of a new wave vibe to it at times. So the song Spin It On, for instance, is like two and a half minutes of just raw kind of really kind of frenetic post-punk. And, yeah, I think that's fantastic as well. But he was really receptive to punk. Uh, he said that, you know, these guys, as in the punks, were just shaking it up and it needed shaking up. And even John Lennon was somewhat inspired by post-punk and he was inspired to record the Double Fantasy album by hearing Rock Lobster. He said the uh, quote in Rolling Stone was, it sounds just like Yoko's music. So I said to myself, it's time to get out the old axe and wake the wife up. <laughs> well, you couldn't say that today. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. I just want to close on this, the, the review of the album, I think, from Rolling Stone at the time. It wasn't universally well received. Described it as an album of oral doodles designed for the amusement of very young children. <laughs> it's pretty harsh on old, old Macker, I think. Coming in at number one, the most bandwagony jumping act of the 1980s, I suppose you might say. You might think you knew these guys, but maybe you didn't. Busting out of their disco straight jackets, the village people went next wave with 1981's food fight and confused everyone, including themselves. How did they end up in the gravy? Well, the Renaissance album from 1981, 
yep. uh, is what we're talking about. And I remember the first time I saw the cover of this album, and bearing in mind it's like, you know, they had big record covers in, in those days. You know, they were... A full 12 inches, in fact. 12 inches, almost exactly 12 inches. And just the faces of these guys who looked exactly like... I mean, you could tell it was the village people and they looked really, really stupid because <laughs> they had the kind of, what would say... Adam and the Ants meets Spandau Ballet. New romantic, basically. New romantic, yeah. romantic. Yeah. There's eyeliner and straightened fringes galore. Well, this is what amazes me is that it was only a year before that Adam and the Ants had utilised Native American imagery in their in their style and lyrics to great effect. Mm. And the village people chose this moment to get rid of the Indian guy. I mean, surely this was a <laughs> this must have been a big mistake. You, you, well, you think they should have had reservations about getting rid of him? <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised they got rid of the construction worker as well, because he would have been part of a pretty strong union, I imagine, at that point. <laughs> they could have well, used him well, as the, a building uh, block. <laughs> well, the, I hate to uh, step in and... Uh, destroy the imagery there, but um, the construction worker was still in the band, I think. It just didn't so, look like it. He looked like an effeminate construction worker now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he, yeah that's right. He ditched the hard hat <laughs> in yeah. favour of a firm. Um, yeah, well, yeah, well, he had ditched the mow and he donned the blush and the eyeliner and yeah. picked up the microphone and sang one of the weirdest songs in a long time, Food Fight. Yeah, I think there's a quote that's probably floating around and out there, and I'm going to quote it verbatim, and it says, Had the village people followed Renaissance, the name of the album, with an album full of songs in the food fight vein, they could easily have had the greatest fake punk band of all time. And you don't get much higher praise than that, because that song... (laughs) This song in particular, Food Fight, sounds like the Dickies meets Devo or something. Mm. It doesn't sound like anything that you'd expect from the village people. And the rest of the album was kind of just sort of soulful. You know, it wasn't disco, but it was certainly nothing in the same vein as this one song. It makes no sense no. at all. No, it was. it's a weird <laughs> album because it's a decent sort of pop, disco, funk sort of album with some good songs on it. I mean, it's a bit of a hodgepodge, mm. but then so was the Beatles' White Album. So, mm. you know, I think <laughs> we, we, we don't need to write it off. On that basis, and I think it's a half decent album. So it's just it's just so so obviously jumping on the bandwagon, absolutely the essence of what we've been talking about. Well, them, it was down to the record company, wasn't it? The record company decided they needed to rebrand them as a new wave group, and I think they tried out a few different looks and a few different things, and this is the look they ended up with, hmm. which made yeah. no sense in relation to anything that had gone before. And then they just do this one kind of punk song which wouldn't have been out of place on an American high school movie in the 80s you know it was one of those not quite punk but silly enough to kind of pass as that I suppose yeah yeah at times they they sounded uh on the second half of the album that they were trying to sound a little bit like Devo at times there's uh Action Man starts off like a a cover of Whip It Mm. before thankfully heading into a chorus which is pure village people and then (laughs) there's nowhere near enough uh pure village people choruses on the Renaissance album, which is... Do you remember how you felt at the time about this album, Paddy? Were you let down or exhilarated? <laughs> <laughs> After Victor left the band, I lost interest. 
Yeah. So you know, he was, was a bit of a hero to you. He was, <laughs> he was the policeman lead singer, wasn't he? Is that right? Yes, he was Victor. And he was heterosexual, I believe. Was he married to Felicia <laughs> Richard? Is that is that her name? The uh, Mrs. Huxtable. Oh, really? Possibly. I didn't know that. Mm. I believe he left to pursue other inquiries. <laughs> 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 Uh, sorry, sorry, guys. I just this song is so ludicrous. It, it just yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bringing out all the fantastic things. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Graham, and, what, was, what was your take on this? Well, the, my problem with it was the image thing. I mean, they'd gone from being six iconic characters to just being a bunch of guys mm. and mm. in makeup. Yeah, it's like when Kiss took off their makeup and it's like. Which, which one is the cat? Of course, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, You're yeah, just yeah. A, a hair, another hair metal band from America. Yeah, my favourite song of theirs from the 70s was probably YMCA. Uh, yeah. yeah, don't make me spell it out. But um, <laughs> you can sing that song through the eyes of a bunch of blue-collar workers. But these guys mm. don't look like they go anywhere near a YMCA. You know, forget about the Navy. It's, it, it just seems... <laughs> It just seems that their back catalogue no longer fits with so how they are saying they weren't keeping it real. Mm-hmm. No, no, they weren't. I mean, they would have embarked on the Renaissance World Tour after this, obviously, yeah. after the success of it. They would have played all the albums, then they would have had to sing their old hits at the end, and, and those guys couldn't pull off Macho Man. No, 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 no that's, right. Thing, that's right. The whole thing made no sense, which is why, to me, it deserves to be number one. It's the most nonsensical bandwagon yeah. jumping attempt out of everything we've spoken of so far by a clear margin. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And also the album ends with three of the weirdest songs. So the third last song is Big Mac, an ode to McDonald's as far as I can tell. That's followed by the song Diet, which is a song about dieting, presumably after having had the Big Macs. <laughs> and then the last song is Food Fight, which is people throwing Big Macs at each other. So well, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just crazy. It is. It, it, is. Was, it was a concept album. Okay, that's right. But um, sadly, the food fight song sung by David Hodo, the um, construction worker, uh, he does say in retrospect that he hates the song, which is a real shame because I think it's a. I think it's a. Cool I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Well, yeah. If they'd done more and more of this, yeah, we may not be talking about the village mm. people in the same way, but it was just such a strange outlier. But um, yeah, 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 it deserved number one. I think absolutely. Mm. And if I can just, if I can just add a fun fact about um, their first video for the song San Francisco, which charted in Australia but more or less nowhere else. In 1977, their first video was directed by Julie Kavner, as in the voice of Marge Simpson. Oh, that's so sweet that you thought of me first. Uh, so, <laughs> so there you go. She started out strong and kind of went nowhere after. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't know what became of her. But, uh, yeah, look, I think... Um, I think we can probably agree that uh, are you are you dissenting, Graham, from the village people as number one by the length of what's a long several straight? false eyelashes. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now I think this is a worthy winner. Is is it a winner? I don't know. It is. But it, it's certainly it's the best of the be- the best of the worst. It's mm. certainly a worthy number one. I think. Um, even though I seem to have more of a problem with their change of image than you guys. The actual song, I think, is, is great. Yeah. As well as an obvious bandwagon jump. Yeah.